podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President of Borealis, Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. So if you've been following us over the past couple of years, you know that we've looked at a huge variety of aspects of terrorism and violent extremism around the world. We've looked at things here in Canada, since this is where I'm from. We've looked at uh, events around the world in Asia, Middle East, and Africa. And on occasion, I've had the pleasure and honor of having somebody talk to me about this particular phenomenon and today is one of those days so I'm really really honored to welcome to the podcast Mubin Sheikh an old friend of mine from Toronto so uh, Mubin welcome to the podcast. Hey thanks for having me Phil. So Mubin a lot of Canadians um, might know about who you are you of course are you are, are a Canadian you're from the greater Toronto area and back in the mid-2000s you became in uh, famous or some people might say infamous for your involvement in a major counterterrorism operation that became known later on as the Toronto 18. This was a plot to explode a bunch of one-ton fertilizer bombs in the downtown Toronto area and, and elsewhere in Ontario. Can you just take us back to those days and what was it that you were aware of and, and why it was that you decided to work for the security service and then later on for the RCMP and actually testify as an expert witness in the trial? What, what led you to that decision? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think it all started really, uh, you know, the the life experience that I went through previously. So long story short, you know, I went through an identity crisis as I was going uh, growing up and into my teenage years. Uh, I would end up going to India and Pakistan. In Pakistan, I met the Taliban, became enamored by them, you know, as like the Muslim heroes out of the storybooks of old. Um, and... And then 9-11 would happen. And then that prompted me to go to Syria to study Arabic and Islamic studies, uh, where I came to realize that my my extremist views were completely wrong. And so I returned back to Canada. And the first week that I got back, um, Momin Kuwaja was in the newspaper. Now, Momin Kuwaja, who was arrested in connection uh, in, of the 2004 London fertilizer bomb plot, was a childhood friend of mine. Wow. And yeah. I went to Quran school with him. I used to play Hot Wheels cars with him. Uh, so it was surreal to see this guy on the front page of this paper. And so that would prompt me to contact the uh, security intelligence service. Um, and, uh, you know, an intel officer came to see me, um, you know, looked me up and down, trying to figure out what, what, what this guy was about. And eventually, uh, you know, accepted that. I could probably be of benefit to the service. And so it started with the service. I, I worked for uh, some time with the service uh, before the Toronto 18 case, of course. And all, all we can say really is that I did the, the same kind of work that led me into this Toronto 18 case. So, so that, that's like the overview of how it started. Um, and basically it was uh, November 25th, 2005. I'll never forget that date because I've had to say it so many times in court. Um, but that was the day that I actually infiltrated the group, uh, became friends with them. They kind of let their guard down and let me know of their plans uh, to conduct uh, various attacks on uh, specific Canadian targets. Uh, I would then, so this is when I, I would traverse over to the RCMP because, I mean, for those who may not know, uh, you know, the service collects information, the police collect evidence, and that evidence is then 
presented in court. So, you know, I, I did go through a period of like, Hmm, should I do this? Because it was like, I realized that my identity was going to be exposed. My activities were going to be exposed. And I really didn't know how the Muslim community primarily was going to respond to it and deal with it. So, um, so I, I, you know what, I was very altruistic and wanted to do the right thing. Um, you know, after my stay in Syria, uh, I had a, you know, epiphany and a newfound appreciation for, for Canada and the rights that we have in Canada, uh, especially with the Muslim community. And so, uh, so I was happy to, to do what I did, but not really understanding the fallout that would, that would come from it. So, so, right. that, so that's basically so, how it started. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, you would, you self-described as sort of being at the precipice in the early 2000s in terms of this admiration for the Taliban, seeing these guys as, as Muslim heroes. And yet you basically walked yourself back from that precipice. You weren't forced or cajoled. You look, you saw what you saw and you thought, Hey, this is not just not for me. This is not right. So if I can ask you a question before we get back to sort of your experience with the Toronto 18, do you think that's common for someone to have the maturity, shall we say, or understanding that this very glorified, unrealistic, heroic form of Islam or worship is wrong? Does that happen to a lot of people? Or are you kind of like a, an outlier in this sense? You know, that's hard to know because, you know, I'm sure there are others who have gone through a similar, uh, you know, trajectory and we just don't know about them because, you know, they really, they kind of came close, flirted with the idea a little bit, uh, but then realized, you know what, I mean, this it's, this is stupid. I, I can't do this. I'm not going to get a job. I can't get married. So maybe just for, you know, mundane, realistic things, they just walked away from it. We We just don't know because unless they became involved in some, you know, uh, public activity, it's, it's hard to know, you know, how many, but I'm sure there are others who have gone through that. I think that's a, probably a fair comment. So unless they crossed a radar or other of a security service like CSIS, so for, again, for my listeners, this is the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, which is called the Service in Canada. So unless they have actually been involved in an investigation, you're probably right, the vast majority sort of go undetected. And I guess that's both a good thing and a bad thing, right? Those that go undetected and decide for themselves, this is not what Islam stands for or any other faith for that matter. We have Hindu extremists and Buddha extremists and all kinds of things. Um, that's a good thing. The ones that go undetected and don't learn that and go the, the nth degree and get involved in something. Uh, we obviously saw that happen here in Canada back in 2014 with uh, Michael Zahat Bibo. So um, but getting back then to this this other question, so you you made a conscious decision that you wanted to work for the security service, and then you also made a very brave decision to work for the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, in which, as you said, you would become a public figure. You would have to testify in court eventually, likely. Not, not all cases go to court, but this one did. And the whole world would know Mubin Sheikh was the source. He was the agent that worked with the federal police. So what did that do to you in terms of your reputation in the community, friends, family, greater community? Were you were you ostracized? Were, or were you seen as somebody that really played a heroic role in trying to stop bad things from happening? Yeah, I think the best way I can describe it, and pun fully intended, it was like a bomb went off in the community. And there are a number of reasons that I give. I, I, I sometimes try to, you know, I put a situational attribution to this trying to put aside the, my, my personal feelings and the emotions that I went through. Um, but, you know, they, 
I think not just the Muslim community, but even the larger non-Muslim Canadian society were in total disbelief, uh, in denial, really, that something like this could happen in Canada. Because, you know, there there is that uh, stereotype, you know, Canada is this sleepy town, you know, where nothing really happens. Um, but but that wasn't the case. I mean, something was happening. Criminal offenses were committed. The court certainly you know, validated that. But a bomb had gone off in the community. Um, you know, they, and again, I make this uh, excuse, if you will, or not excuse, but explanation that maybe it was because Muslims have been in this post 9-11 environment. They feel like they're under siege. Mm -hmm. So it would make sense to me that anybody that basically highlights the wrongdoing that's happening in the Muslim community is seen to be reinforcing that siege. Mm. So I became the bad guy. Um, I was, of course, I entrapped everybody. Um, this was the default accusation and remains the default accusation used by too many Muslims uh, whenever there's an undercover involved, right? There's this myth uh, that's promoted in the Muslim community that the mere presence of an undercover equals entrapment. Uh, not realizing, not really looking beyond their nose uh, that the only way one can collect uh, intelligence or evidence of covert criminality is through covert collection. That there's no other way. I mean, in, undercovers are used in biker gangs, in mafia cases, in gangs. Uh, you know, it's a, it's the same tactic. It's not like, you know, they're using this on Muslims only. And uh, these white supremacists that are getting arrested, you know, also using undercovers. But, you know, nobody calls it entrapment, right? So so th this yeah. was a narrative. Yeah, That's a good point because, of course, you know, we here in Canada had the, the, the famous case out in Victoria, British Columbia in 2013 with John Nuttall and Amanda Karodi who were picked up after having planted pressure cooker bombs on the lawn of the BC legislature time to go off in midday on Canada Day when there would have been hundreds or if not thousands of people and young children and families on celebrating the national holiday and of course uh, that they were found guilty by jury and then the judge threw out the case based on entrapment and then the court of appeals agreed with the judge that in fact the RCMP had employed what's called a Mr. Big operation and then that John Nuttall, Amanda Crody couldn't organize a piss up in a bar had it not been for the RCMP source so in some ways our own judicial system has reinforced that. And I'm just, you know, I don't know if you've ever has sort of heard this since that time, whether people have used the the, the, the Nato Karoti case from 2013 to oh, say, yeah. oh yeah, that's what Mubin did way back in 2005 as well. Oh yeah, I mean, confirmation bias, right? I mean, they're gonna look for whatever validates their preconceived notions. And so they were hoping, you know, that the entrapment narrative took hold on a Toronto case. I mean, and again, I mean, I would note that it's literally impossible for there to be entrapment because these guys were already on the radar of the service several months before I got involved. You know, they had already organized everything before I got involved. It's only when I, in November 25th, on November 25th, when I became buddy buddies with them, that they let down their guard and they revealed that they had this plan. They had a training camp they were going to go to, and they had already invited all the attendees to the camp. So I, I was almost like a fluke, you know, last-minute entry. Uh, so, I mean, all their stuff was well in play before I got involved. So entrapment is literally impossible. Now, the BC case, you know, I mean, there were some things here and there. The RCMP basically uh, accused of using force or threats. Uh, but notwithstanding uh, all that, the, definitely the community that was looking for that validation that, yep, it's entrapment, they certainly went to town on that BC case.
that was for them a proof uh, that everything was illegitimate. That's a really good point, and I, I, you know, I obviously I can't go into a lot of details, but I will confirm your statement that yes, in fact, by the time you were brought in, and, and a very good friend of mine ended up being your handler with, with CSIS, that uh, we were onto these guys uh, quite a bit uh, beforehand. Obviously, I'm not going to say exactly how and when and why, but so all these years later, so the Toronto 18, it, believe you know, believe it or not, this is now 15, coming up to 15 years old, which is really hard for me to believe, because it was uh, one of the biggest cases that I worked on. Um, has anything changed? Is anything changed in the sense that do you think the community and I, I'm using the community very broadly? That's an unfair term. You know as well as I do, there are multiple yeah. communities in Canada, whether it's geographical or right. ethnic or ethno-nationalist or whatever. Is there is there an understanding or an appreciation or acknowledgement that gee, you know, we really dodged a bullet back then in 2005, 2006, and you know there are people in our in our midst who are willing to do these things. We certainly have seen a whole host of foreign fighters leave from Canada. We have, you know, the infamous people like John McGuire, who became spokespeople for ISIS, as did um, Andre Poulin from Timmins, and there's a whole host of them. Uh, the um, the guy, um, I've forgotten his name, the, the, the uh, Somali from Calgary, um, Farah Sheerden, you know, burning his passport yep. over a bonfire somewhere in Iraq or Syria. Has anything gotten better since that time in your, in your evaluation? Well, I think people are, uh, they realize that, you know, yeah, something was going on, especially because in 2006, nobody really thought, okay, you know, this is a problem, uh, you know, but again, not paying attention to what was happening in other countries. And remember July 2005, the London bombings, um, you know, uh, the Operation Pendennis in Australia. So, you know, there were these things happening in other places in the world. And then it happened in Canada, the Toronto 18. But again, people were not paying attention as much as I believe they are paying attention now, especially with the proliferation of ISIS that just took over everything. And and so I think a lot of people realize that, hold on, you know, something's happening, something's going on. And for what it's worth, I think a, a lot of community members realize that, yeah, you know what, something was happening. And, and surprisingly, I mean, I say surprisingly, there were some people who, you know, we're, you know, in the beginning, quite skeptical and whatnot, but then did come around. And, and actually, there are prominent members in the community who, who did come forward and say, no, you know what, what that guy did was right, it was an entrapment. And, and they've kind of left me alone. But, but there still is a bitterness, I think, towards me in the community to this day, there are some who will still just, you know, they're unforgiving, right, in that sense. And they'll just they'll just kind of write me off as this guy's a spy and, and we don't want to talk to him. But but I do believe it has changed uh, other, you know, people who have normally not talked to me or, or engaged me or entertained me. Uh, now they, they, they certainly do. And uh, I think they've they've matured out of their skepticism of prior. In, in a perverse kind of way, the fact that nothing happened, you know, obviously we had you as a human source. There were other human sources, as you're well aware. There was surveillance. There was. Um, inevitably some federal court intercept warrants that were obtained under under illegal tools. So we were on these guys like, you know, basically like like butter on bread, right? The fact that nothing happened, the fact that but when they were arrested on, I mean, you know, I forget the day, you know, June, or it was June 2nd, 2006, you know, the famous raid where they, they took uh, two of the guys unloading fertilizer from a, a truck into a storage area. It wasn't fertilizer, it was kitty litter. All the stuff had been controlled to the nth degree. So there really was no threat to public safety that day because everything had been neutralized. Do you think the fact that nothing happened had a, one of the reasons why it seems so incredible? This never happens in Canada. This wasn't yeah. real. 
this was some kind of a police operation yeah and you know this this kind of uh, demonstrates right that 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 essential problem that we have. It's that like we're not going to wait until something happens and then respond to it. You know, responding after the fact is a is a failure, right? I mean, the attack happened. Um, so you know what this shows is a strong security apparatus that worked successfully uh, to stop what could have been a plot. And also, I would add that it certainly did serve as a deterrence factor. Uh, we will never see again, um, well, certainly not since 2006, such a large number of individuals caught up in such a plot. And, and I think that was because of that deterrence factor set by the very public prosecution. And that's one of the reasons why we would have public prosecutions is to show the public by testing the evidence and testing the, the individual providing the evidence uh, that, listen, we, we did this correctly. And so, and so I think it's, it's a very good thing that nothing happened, obviously, because my God, could you imagine the fallout and forget about it? Cause I even thought at the beginning and, and it, you know, a lot of even the, the RCMP handlers were like, come on, who would, you know, storm parliament building? Yeah. Well, what happened in October, 2015, 2014, yeah, 14. It's exactly what happened. One guy, Zihaf Bibo, you mentioned him earlier. He did exactly that. So you know, while some people think, well, you know, what could have happened, right? And that, like you mentioned, it was successfully interdicted so that the plot that they had could not, you know, become a reality. But think about all the grades below that. What if, I mean, this is exactly what Zakaria Amara did, right? He broke off from the larger group and went off to do his own thing. But uh, others could have easily done the exact same thing, right? And we know what just one or two people can do going up to a place and shooting it up. And so I think there were a number of trajectories which could have been realities, but thank God they were not. I think that's a really good point. As you say, there are 18 individuals, so 17 were arrested in June and the, and the 18th was arrested later on in August. And for the, my listeners who aren't familiar with the case, 11 eventually were found guilty, seven were uh, had charges stayed, and only a few did some really serious time in jail. But I think it's a very good point you make, Mubin, that you know, 18 guys is kind of like a, hi, here's, here we're here, here's who we are and what we're doing. Whereas, you know, one actor alone is really hard to, to follow. It's really hard to interdict. Two, a little easier. And as it gets bigger, it gets, it gets all that easier. But you're absolutely right. You look at the, the, the sort of trajectory of plots in the Western world since the, you know, the Toronto 18. And you've had the bigger ones like the Bataclan attacks and over in 2015 in Paris. But a lot of them are, are onesies and twosies and threesies. So I, I guess there is that. Uh, silver lining is that by showing that we were on these guys right from the beginning, it kind of both taught them a lesson, but also I think lessened the potential impact. Not to say that one guy can't do a lot of damage. You certainly have seen that in case, like the case in Christchurch last year with the shoot up of the mosque by, by one guy, but one guy sort of by definition can't do as much damage as 18 guys can do. So maybe that is sort of a, uh, I don't know, a bit of a, I guess that a silver lining to this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we we saw other plots, right? The Project Samosa, you know, three guys in in Ottawa, and uh, and and it's not that you you can see even after the arrests in two thousand six, it, it did not deter some people, right? I mean, they they certainly continued, you know, as business as usual, but you know, the hammer fell on them too. So, so ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, I'm I'm glad that I would rather that people you know, make stories about this and that and whatever else than us talking about this horrific attack that happened in Canada in 2006. 
Exactly. And if you've seen the, you know, the, we talked about briefly about Zahat people. He was the guy that's killed Nathan Cirillo at the war memorial on October 22nd, 2014, and then tried to storm parliament. It was killed by parliamentary security. Of course, two days prior to that, Matankutu ran over a, a, a Patrice Vincent, a warrant officer outside of Montreal, killing him. Nice. And since that time, we've had, again, the, the, sort of the very low-level stuff. We had the, the guy run over the police officer in Edmonton in, in 2017. We had Aaron Driver right. with his lousy bomb in the back of a taxi. We had Rahab Dugmash in a Canadian tire in, in 2017, et cetera, et cetera. So, as I said earlier, 15 years have passed. And i got to tell you, Mubin, if there's one guy I have a hard time keeping track of, it's you. Um, we have crossed <laughs> we have crossed paths a number of times uh, in the intervening years. Uh, some some of it I was still at CSIS, some of it since my retirement. But you just seem to be in all places at all times. So I, if you could just share with my listeners, like what have you been up to over the past fifteen years? Because I know it's been a hell of a lot. Yeah, I mean, geez, you know, at twenty ten when the court case was done, right? Uh, five legal hearings over four years. I mean, the microscope that I was put under, my God, I mean, you know, I, I look, I do kind of look back on it favorably in that it really honed my skills and made me very sharp in that sense. You know, I, I understood what this was all about uh, while I was doing, while I was testifying, I, I obtained a master's degree in policing intelligence and counterterrorism and kind of started and, and, and studied it from the outside looking in. Um, and when 2010, you know, when the court case was over, I got onto social media and now saw the rise of ISIS in real time. So 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, I was very involved uh, online trying to troll these guys, track some of them. And what had happened is in this time, uh, the State Department reached out to me, uh, U.S. Uh, Special Operations Command reached out to me. And so I started to work with them, training some of their people to, you know, kind of learn what I was doing and how I was approaching it. And it just kind of took off from there. And so uh, right now, as we're, we're doing this interview, I'm in Tampa, uh, just up the road from McDill Air Force Base, where I just gave a lecture at the Joint Special Operations University at CENTCOM, um, at SOCOM, uh, just talking about these topics, right, on extremism, radicalization, I, I even do a tactical Islam 101 course where, uh, you know, I just kind of show them, I give them the basics of Islam, you know, the different styles of dress that people have. So like how a, a Shia cleric might dress versus a Gulf Arab versus a Sufi sheikh. Uh, so this is what I've been doing since then. I'm now working for an organization called Parents for Peace, uh, parentsforpeace.org. And we're using basically former extremists. Uh, you know, taking the, the experiences of parents who have been affected by terrorism, some of their kids having joined up and gone to, you know, dead now uh, or in prison. Um, and so that's that's what I've been, um, you know, singularly focused on. And uh, it seems to be what I'm going to be doing for the next little while. Well, that's that is so cool. I, I'm so glad to hear that you are still passionate. And as, as has been quite evident in, in our talk today, and you're still interested in sharing your knowledge and experiences with people who have to know these things. And, you know, whether it's the U.S. military or Canadian police or, or Lord knows what, there is a, a lot of lack of knowledge out there. And you and I have had talks about this an awful lot, is that it's often worse than nothing when the, the wrong information is shared and the wrong kinds of advice are given. So, you know, Mubin, you know, we've, uh, like I said, we've become friends over the past couple of years. I, I didn't have a, the the pleasure of working for you when you, when you worked for CSIS, but... 
uh, I, I do consider you a friend, and but even even at that, I just want to I want to state publicly that. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, you are not only a great Canadian, but you are a Canadian hero for what you did, and I wish more people recognize that. Right on, thanks. Yeah, you know what? There's there's always going to be haters. You know, I've I've come to you know just kind of accept it. Uh, people are going to be petty. People are going to be jealous. Whatever it is, you know what? I I just got to just throw it, toss it behind me, and just keep moving forward. And uh, you know what? I'm I'm going places. Uh, I got a nice hot tub outside that I'm going to hit soon. So. Life is good, brother. Life is good. Well, I don't want to keep you from your hot tub. And we all know that Taylor Swift did sing Haters Gotta Hate, Hate, Hate. So uh, right. keep up the good work, my friend. And thanks for being part of the podcast. Right on. Thank you, sir. God bless and Godspeed. So that was it for podcast uh, Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I do want to thank Mubin for being part of it again. Uh, I'd like to hear what you think of the interview, what you thought of Mubin's thoughts, what you thought of the situation as how he presented it here in Canada. You can go to my website, www.borealisthreatenrisk.com. Reach me on Gmail, borealisrisk at gmail.com, on Twitter at borealisaves, on LinkedIn or Facebook. You can also subscribe to all the data available on Borealis. Just go to the website, hit the subscribe button, fill in your information. You get all the podcasts, all the blogs, all the interviews free of charge through your inbox on a daily basis. So I look forward to hearing from you, what you thought of this podcast or others, ideas for the future. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe.